Hi, this is Robbie Jester. Come see me at Stone Balloon, Limestone Barbecue and Bourbon, or order from Full Circle Food. You are listening to the Cast Chasers podcast. Hey there, Cast Chasers. This week, we have a great interview for you as we continue our at-home edition of the Cast Chasers podcast. This week, we have renowned local chef Robbie Jester calling into the show. If you're local to Delaware, you may know Robbie's amazing restaurants, the Stone Balloon Ale House or Limestone Barbecue, or you may have seen him compete on Guy's Grocery Games or his victory on Beat Bobby Flay. Chef Robbie Jester has so many great stories to share, including his road into the restaurant business, the challenges of opening a whiskey bar, and just how intense it was to go one-on-one with one of the best chefs in the world. So pour a dram and settle in. This is the Cash Chasers Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Cash Chasers podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope everybody is doing safe and well. Thank you for downloading, rating, reviewing the show and and always being here. We appreciate it. As always, we have Bobby Bird coming in from via Skype. Hey, man. And we have Aaron Pross also calling in. Hey, Aaron. Hey, happy to be here or there or wherever I am. This is our new normal. We're uh, continuing our remote recordings outside of the studio. I'm in the studio. The uh, the other guys are calling in from home. And this week we have a very special guest calling in. You may know our next guest, especially if you are in the Delaware region. You have more than likely visited at least one of his restaurants because he owns uh, Stone Balloon and Limestone Barbecue. And you may also have seen him from uh, one of Food Network's appearances on uh, Guy's Grocery Games or uh, Beat Bobby Flay. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Robbie Jester. Robbie, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is going to be great. And uh, we've been looking forward to this interview for a while. So first off, uh, we definitely want to get to Limestone Barbecue. Uh, that is one of the, uh, the the great places around, especially in this area, to get some great bourbon and whiskey in general. But let's back up a little bit. Let's just talk about uh, kind of your, you know, what got you into the food game? Because you've been in, in it for a while, right? Scott, before you get started, so- Robbie, not to interrupt, I didn't get my meal prepared by him. Was that shipped here or what's... <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you should feel prepared by me or prepared by by Bobby Flay? Because I think he's a little behind right now. Studio home cooked meal. I may I missed something. I don't know, but I'm up here in my bedroom with nothing. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying. Did did you order, did you order through a third party delivery service? Because that might be our issue. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Robbie, yeah, a little bit about uh, what how you got into it. What, what got you into food? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a restaurant brat. I grew up in the business. So my parents had a a bar when I was growing up on Route Four in Newark called the Village Pub in Prime Time. So kind of like right around the same time as the Stone Balloon uh, came up, the original Stone Balloon. My parents had uh, the Village Pub in Prime Time in Newark. So I grew up in the bar. Uh, you know, my grandfather, I tell a story, my grandfather would pay me with a roll of quarters and I would clean the bathrooms and take the trash out and do all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I loved the crane machine. So he would pay me with a roll of quarters and then I would take and spend every quarter in the crane machine. And he would just tell me to go out in the car and wait for a little bit. And then he would rewrap the same roll of quarters. So he got me for like two whole summers on the same $10. Um, so pretty smart. That was my first lesson in business. Um, so from there, my parents took over a seafood restaurant in Maryland. Uh, that was when I was 12. 
So I started there washing dishes, making soup, salads, desserts, started working on the line at 14. And then at 15, my dad took over another restaurant. So I, uh, me and my 15, 16 year old friends, we kind of ran the, the line in that restaurant while he took over the next one. So we had two restaurants for that time period. Uh, from there, I went to Culinary Institute of America, came back, worked at Hotel DuPont, DuPont Country Club, Toscana and Wilmington, uh, catered Vice President Biden's daughter's wedding, cooked for the King and Queen of Sweden, ended up at 16 Mile Tap House, which was then turned into Stone Balloon. And then kind of the story writes itself from there. So I know that you were contemplating uh, Michigan State University at one point in time. There was. So I had... Um, I had applied, been accepted, and had a lot of free money to go to Michigan State uh, and told my parents a week before I was leaving that that's not what I wanted to do. Mm. So uh, it wasn't a popular decision around the Jester household. Uh, But uh, while I was waiting to hear back from the Culinary Institute, I applied for massage school and I got a certificate in massage and body work. So my dad was like, you're not going to hang around the house and not do anything. Uh, so that was my my answer to that while I was waiting to hear back from the Culinary Institute. Okay. Okay. Hey, you you can cook and massage. Yep. Yep. So so when I get ready to retire, watch out for Robbie's rub and grub. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, I, I'm curious. You know, how important was it to you after uh, all the all those years? How important was it to you to bring back the Stone Balloon name? Uh, you know, honestly, so when I took over at um, 16 Mile and then when High Five Hospitality bought the location, uh, you know, I kind of came with the building there. And it was we played with the idea of making it something new, and it just seemed like it was the right time to bring that name back to Main Street um, and pay homage to what happened there back in the day but not necessarily relive it. You know, the luxury condos above it make it a little hard to uh, to rage like they used to. Uh, but I've gotten really fond of all of the stories and people coming in, you know, telling me they used to drink there back in the day. And I remember the stone balloon. And my my go to is whenever I have, a, you know, a young lady of age 70 or older that tells me she used to party in the balloon back in the day. I'm like, oh, so those are, those are your footprints on the bar. That's Got right. it. <laughs> I have a buddy of mine that, that uh, tells me uh, the stories of seeing Metallica there. And we actually found. Uh, old footage of the entire concert from that from that location, which is just insane to think about that band playing inside of the uh, the old stone balloon. Yeah. But yeah, we, we I hear similar stories all the time. Yeah, there's uh, there's tons of those stories and tons of those acts. And you know, we have a wall in the restaurant that has the acts, the big name acts that played, and some of the smaller name acts. But we always have people that come up and they're like, "Well, you missed this band on the wall, and you missed that band on the wall." <laughs> people, I know Pat Benatar played there. I know she's not on the wall. Stop. Right. <laughs> it's uh, it's been neat to be a part of that heritage. And uh, Bill Stevenson, who was the original owner during that time period. Uh, he's a great fan. He's a great uh, guest of the restaurant. So he comes in and tells me some of the some of the stories I think that probably haven't been published. Um, so it's been cool to be a part of that uh, a part of that story. So Robbie, I know you don't like to cook at home. That's not uh, you prefer the wide open kitchen. Uh, but when you are cooking in one of your kitchens, do you have any flavors that you tend to lean to or a cuisine that you prefer? Yeah. So I would say that my my leanings uh, from a cooking standpoint would be Italian and then seafood. Okay. So. In my years at Tuscana, I really gained a, a passion for Italian cooking, specifically um, Dan's brand of uh, Tuscan Italian cooking. 
and that more obscure stuff. I like the obscure pasta shapes and stuff like that. But then growing up in a seafood restaurant, you know, I like that. And I like that continental kind of Eastern shore sort of fare. So there's a special place in my heart for uh, grilled filet mignon, crab imperial, crab cakes. And I tend to, to blend the two whenever possible. So I was going to say that the Harbor House had to influence a lot of you know, your palate and things you enjoy, especially down there. That's like uh, seafood central, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's... Uh, you know, it's the only kitchen I've ever worked in that had a view of the water from the line. So literally you would put plates up in the window and you could see the uh, you'd see Wharton Creek out there. But it was, yeah, a huge influence. And to be honest with you, when I started working there, I didn't like seafood at all. And I kind of grew to like it as as my time grew uh, down there. So mm. I was my brother was a seafood lover as a kid. I was not. Uh, so I, I've learned that over the years. And now I just really appreciate uh, kind of letting it speak for itself, like the delicate flavors that are involved with that. I love me some Old Bay. I'm an Old Bay kid. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, they they say that on the Eastern Shore, we're a little heavier on that than on the Western Shore of Maryland. But uh, I don't know how true that is, but I do like it. Um, and I, I do enjoy a good uh, pasta dish with like Old Bay cream sauce or something like that. So, Bobby, Aaron here. Um, the, the way you like to cook is the way I like to eat. So that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> My, uh, well, so it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm from Baltimore originally and, uh, my wife comes from a large Italian family. So cooking Italian food is just in her blood. So, um, it's definitely, it, uh, definitely makes sense why I enjoy coming to your places so much. And I'm sure I'm going to, uh, step on Scott's toes here, but I wanted to, uh, dig in, sort of find out where your, where your, uh, love for bourbon, whiskey, and all that sort of stuff sort of uh, came from because you know we are a whiskey podcast. I, I could I could talk food all day, but um, I ju- if you could just talk about you know bourbon, whiskey, that sort of stuff, sort of where what your passion is, what you like, how that all started. That started from from my father as well. So my dad was a Manhattan drinker uh, growing up. So my first taste of whiskey would have been the the cherries at the bottom of the glass. You know, his attempt to stave me away from wanting to drink was uh, the, the little Manhattan cherries at the bottom of the Manhattan. Uh, he enjoyed a Crown Royal Manhattan, and I would say for the from the point where I could buy my own booze um, until like, I don't know, 25 or 26 years old, I really enjoyed a Crown Royal Manhattan or just a really cheap Canadian whiskey Manhattan. There's a, there's a, there's a strong place in my heart for a little Windsor Canadian um, as far as that's concerned, but then it just grew from there. So... I do. I enjoy wine as well, and from there, learning about different whiskeys in general. I am more of a rye whiskey person. I, I tend to. I can appreciate a bourbon and all the complexities of bourbon, but I do like rye. So, uh, Whistle Pig of all varieties would be my go-to. Uh, but that being said, I get in the mood for a bullet. I get in the mood for, you know. Pappy Van Winkle. I do like the younger years on Pappy Van Winkle. I'm a little weird there. I've had I've had the the fortune and the 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 luckiness to be able to try several different um, ages on Pappy Van Winkle. And to be honest with you, I always like the younger ones the best. I feel like uh, I appreciate a little bit of the sharpness that's there in the younger uh, whiskeys and bourbons. But um, yeah, what I drink on a daily basis would be uh, would be Whistle Pig and rye whiskey we actually have a, a celebratory uh bottle 
uh, between my business partner uh, at Full, Cir Full Circle, which we haven't talked about, but we could. Uh, we have a Whistle Pig Old World or Whistle Pig 10 year uh, malt, double malt, uh, like rye whiskey thing that's was really expensive. It's delicious. I'd have to look at the bottle to tell you exactly what it is because it's the only time I've ever seen the bottle, but uh, it's fantastic. We make a we make an effort to show people that sometimes young and inexpensive isn't isn't a bad way. But I was thinking about your barbecue restaurant. I was a little I'm from Texas. So barbecue when I see it come up on the coast, see how long this lasts situation how the bar that's fantastic. And then bourbon on top of it. It's it's the way it speaks. It's there's barbecue and bourbon go together. I can like crabs and obey old bait. Uh, bravo, bravo, bravo. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, the uh, Limestone Barbecue and Bourbon was a discussion that started at Stone Balloon. So Nick, who's the pit boss at Limestone, he he was a line cook at Stone Balloon. And coincidentally, Antonio, who runs the Kitchen of the Expectations, they were both line cooks together. So Nick was like a scout barbecue guy growing up. He grew up, you know, doing doing smoked meats and stuff for Boy Scouts and for churches. And he and I would talk about it across the line. And then from there, you know, his passion became my passion. I started researching it, had the opportunity to go to Texas uh, to visit. And we did like a barbecue tour. And from there, I was actually with uh, Bobby Pancake, one of the owners of uh, High Five Hospitality. So from there, we really got to um appreciate what true barbecue was and true texas barbecue that's where the love came in and we wanted to bring back a taste of that to delaware uh hasn't been without its challenges but it certainly uh i know i like to eat it uh, and it goes great with bourbon and we have a few bourbons that we either hand selected or helped blend um at limestone as well which was a neat process uh the maker's mark private select that we have there we actually went uh it's a really cool process you go into a cave at maker's mark you sit in a room they have basically some graduated cylinders and things then they have five or six um different bourbons that they've infused with in particular types of wood or types of or levels of char and you take a graduated cylinder and you basically measure out the different infused whiskeys to get to a, a blend of what you would like based on the characters of those staves and you can try as many different combinations as you want so that makes for a a fun and lengthy afternoon but we we ended up blending our own so from there you take the mixture that you come up with that is your favorite and then you go out you take a barrel you put these these toasted staves into the barrel and then you fill it with whiskey you top it off um, you all sign the barrel head and everything like that. So really cool experience. So Robbie, can you tell us a little bit about the process of bringing that down South Texas style barbecue restaurant to Delaware and what considerations you had to make once the restaurant opened up? Um, so, you know, what, what we, what we believed was important to start with is not, um, necessarily what, uh, we think is important now. You know, we, we, we try to listen as much as we can to the feedback that we get. So bringing that sort of thing to Delaware, one is a lot of, a lot of research into the system, the service system and things like that, which for us, we tried to bring that authentic Texas standing in line, having the meat cut in front of you. It's all smoked fresh that day. 
brought to Delaware. And what we found is, one, we kept our commitment to quality and freshness. We kept our commitment to uh, the best barbecue around. And I really feel like we have that. What we learned was the state of Delaware wants to sit down and be served their food. So that that along with the the sellout model, which you see everywhere in Texas, you see it in Carolina, you even see it in Memphis, uh, wasn't something that translated well to Delaware. So we got better at our numbers. We did what we do, which was create a system behind, okay, it's, it's Tuesday and, and we're trending to cook uh, 800 pounds of brisket on a Tuesday. Um, so we want, to, we want to make sure that we have just enough and not, not a lot of leftovers. So we've gotten really good at that over time, but we are exploring um, switching that to a table service model so that it serves the, serves the audience. I mean, Delaware tells us what they want. Uh, we will still serve the same great food, but we are we are toying with the idea of full table service at Limestone. And then to play off my last question, can you tell us a little bit about bringing a brand new bourbon bar to the area in addition to that restaurant and what some of the challenges and experiences were in doing that? Well, a, a lot of times it depends on the, the spaces that become available to you. So High Five Hospitality is a franchisee of Buffalo Wild Wings, and we had the Buffalo Wild Wings that was in that space. Um, and they had decided to move it down to Christiana, but had great landlords, had a great space in a busy intersection. Uh, originally, we had talked about just doing barbecue, but then when we had all that space there, it was, okay, how could we utilize this and really serve uh, a craft cocktail and great, um, great spirits, great brown whiskeys and things like that. So it really, we, we bent our idea of that concept to the space. And then as far as the design for the bar, we knew that we wanted to have the best cocktails. We knew we wanted to have hand cut ice. You know, one of the examples of a restaurant, at least somewhat close, that has the same sort of model is Fetisau in Philadelphia. They have smoked barbecue meats. It's one line. They have a bar. It's a separate line. So you go up to both things separately. We really liked that as restaurant people and as food people. We loved the kind of like divide and conquer sort of thing. And if I had one thing, I, I think that we just did a poor job of explaining that in the beginning at Limestone. Super proud of what we curated. Super proud of the, the product and the, the restaurant and everything. But I think we could have done a better job of guiding our guests through that experience in the beginning. Yeah, Robbie. Um, so I've been to um, Stone Balloon and Limestone a couple of times, and I I wanted to. I haven't spent a lot of time at the bar at Stone Balloon, but I have at the bar at Limestone, and it just seems like every time I go there, just the the bartenders, the bar staff, are just so knowledgeable about stuff. Um, and I is that on, on your part? Is that luck? Is that training? Is that vetting? What what is it that because I've I've had um, no, you know nobody knows when I'm when I'm coming in that I'm like a whiskey guy, but um, you know I'll sit down I'll order something and a couple times I've had them you know recommend something hey if you like that you might like this thing as well and it, that's just so rare to see in a bar setting at all. So I did. Did you just sort of what, what's that process? Did you happen upon these people by luck or is that part of the training? Just curious as to that. So I, so I would say it's a hundred percent selection. 
we do we do training and we discuss it. Uh, my training style is more casual because I get into the story behind the different liquors and things like that, uh, and stories behind bourbon. So they'll hear me tell the story and then they'll they'll re- regurgitate. But what I found in this business is when you open a concept like a bourbon bar or a cocktail bar or even like a wine bar or anything like that. Bartenders and servers that are really interested in that in their personal life, they tend to gravitate towards that. So basically the the two key bartenders that we have there, cocktails and bourbon and whiskey is what they're really interested in. So they they take that knowledge that they have from experience, they expand on it with what we bring in-house. And it, it's really a testament to them and the type of people that they are, that they have that level of service with you. We do train them. We do give them education. But... It's fantastic because they they came in the out of the gate with tons of information, tons of knowledge. Um, that that's really cool. When I uh, I had actually at one point, I'm, I'm more of a Scotch drinker than a bourbon drinker. I had never tried Blends, and it's like who who hasn't tried Blends? And I forget what I ordered to begin with, and um, I, I forget I forget the young lady's name who was who was tending bar. But she was like, oh, if you like that, we try Blanton's. And I'm like, oh, I've never had it. And I had it, and I was like, this is similar to what I was just drinking. But it's you know just got those couple steps extra that just make it more what I was into. And she, she had asked me questions, you know, what do you like, what don't you like about this whiskey? And it was just, it was just spot on. And the, the, just the, the, the fact that I had a bartender introduce me to Blanton's as a whiskey guy was just kind of funny to me at that point. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's good. And I think that that is, that makes me happy because what we need to do in our business is more of leading a guest towards what they want than rather the, the systematic soulless upsell. So they hear me preach that all the time in the restaurants right now. I don't want the upsell. I mean, I think that it's great if it's something that you are interested in drinking or eating, but if it's not, then I want them to stay away from that. I want them to ask you questions to lead you towards something that you're going to like. Hey, Robbie, I have two questions for you. Whiskey sommeliers are kind of a small world, but is that coming? Is that is that is that something we can look forward to, us whiskey people, or are we? Is is does wine own that? So, uh, my personal opinion on that is that where we will see whiskey and bourbon as connoisseurs come into play is at the punctuation of the meal. So at the beginning and the end of the meal. So I think that a lot of, honestly, there's a lot of food flavors out there that are overpowered by a bourbon, by a whiskey and things like that. Certainly you can construct a plate towards those flavor profiles and, and make something that stands up um, and that complements well. But, Where I think that whiskey and bourbon is stronger is to begin your evening and end your evening. So I love it with desserts and things like that because the sweetness or the acidity from a dessert helps to round out the the bite that you might have from bourbon and things like that. Everything has its place. I do think that wine kind of owns the middle of the meal, but whiskey and bourbon, I will grow as a part of pre-dinner and post-dinner cocktails. Absolutely. And not to put you on the spot, but what's your perfect whiskey cocktail? My perfect whiskey cocktail? So I like it simple. Um, So I would say an old-fashioned that's made with 
a single Amarena cherry, a little bit of that, that Amarena cherry liqueur, um, and blood orange bitters on a stone as simple as it can be. Uh, I just like that flavor profile. I do think a little bit of the orange, more so of the zest flavor, which you'll get from the bitters, and just a little tiny bit of sweetness to round it out is a perfect cocktail. That's awesome. There is, there is, so R2L in Philadelphia, they have, if you've ever been there or haven't been there, the cocktail lounge at R2L has probably the prettiest view of Philadelphia that there is. I forget what floor it's on, but it's way up there. And they have an old fashioned where they just do um, the the whiskey a little like they basically float uh, the St. Germain over top of the drink. Like it's such a slight amount. And then just a fresh cut ice. I would I wouldn't really call it a cube. It's more like an ice um, oval that they cut from a block behind the bar and just a piece of orange peel. And it is it gives me that same sort of feel of just a little bit of that orange, that zest sort of aroma and flavor, and then a the little bit of sweetness from the liqueur. Every time I ask a chef that question, and I, believe it or not, I've asked a few, uh, whining and dining, and in this world of you know whiskey, we meet a couple, and they always they always kind of say the same thing, which I appreciate. You see it, you see a chef do it with good ingredients. Let the main ingredient do. Yeah, I think if you're going to add a ton of stuff to it, I think that that should be, you know, really ever do that to bourbon or whiskeys of any kind. But if you're going to add a bunch of stuff to a cocktail or to a drink, I think that that should stay more towards the the vacation time sort of stuff where, you know, you're, you're looking for something that you can you can drink 15 of them in a day versus a, a bourbon drink where you want to have two or three and enjoy your evening. Hey, Robbie, how much do you, you know, with your the, the level of talent you have with, with your bartenders, how much do you see them bring in their own cocktail recipes, their flair? You know, just you know, can you give us a little insight of, of uh, some of the, the, the uh, talent that you guys have behind the bar there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a few that stand out. I think that Rosemary and Joey at uh, Limestone Barbecue are fantastic. And they certainly it's. I call it bouncing and that's kind of like my creative process to begin with. But if we have someone come in with a new bourbon or a new liqueur or a new ingredient or mixer for that matter, they really will take it and go, okay, well, this is what I would see with it. And they kind of bounce that idea down the line. I'll taste one. I will, I will generally adjust for balance, but usually the ideas are pretty good. Um, and I, those two in particular, I like, how they their cocktail road will kind of diverge at the fork. So he tends to like things that are a little bit more on the on the the savory side. She will add more um, mixers and things like that to it. Um, but their perspective is both great. They've been doing it a long time, so their cocktails generally have like a lot of balance and things like that. Um, Stone Balloon, we have um, Michelle. She's she's great. She's been doing this for a long time. She's got a good sense of cocktails, what sells, what doesn't sell. Uh, and all three of them have completely different styles. So it's them taking and owning a little bit of the restaurant. And I love that. I, I honestly wish across the board that more bartenders and cooks did that, where they came to me with an idea and were like, hey, what do you think? What do you think about the the way this comes together? And then we could tweak it together and it becomes something that's, 
that's a product of the restaurant or or the the organization or product of the team is like okay this might this needs a little bit more acid or this this needs to be a little bit sweeter and we work on things like that because that's how I learned growing up and I think that I wish more people did that but we're we're lucky to have those three in particular I think that they're fantastic so let's uh let's switch gears a little bit and you know uh, a lot of people may have uh seen you on the uh, the food network um uh, so a couple shows you've been on a few times actually uh first off talk a little bit about guys grocery games and, and what that experience was like um are we allowed to curse yeah <laughs> <laughs> so guys grocery games hard as f- <laughs> it's, it is really hard um it's it's staged in a warehouse in california it is not air-conditioned and the grill that you're standing next to is hotter than the gates of hell. Oh, it's and they like guys grocery games. There's this. This sounds a little prissy, but there's no makeup. They, they want you to look as shiny and as sweaty and as flushed as you could possibly look running through that grocery store. Oh, so it's hard. I mean, when you have a half hour to 45 minutes and you're creating a Thanksgiving feast with $11 and 98 cents in coupons and you have to make four of those plates and you got to run through the grocery store, get back, make your food and, and have hands up in 45 minutes. It it's hard. Like I have nightmares of guys, grocery games where I'm, uh, he's like, ready, set, go. He does his one, two, three thing. I'm shopping. I get two ingredients in my cart and all of a sudden I got 15 minutes left. I get back to my station. I got eight minutes left. Then I burn something and I got two minutes left and I'm sitting there and I got nothing on the plate and it's like, hands up. It's cooks talk about the nightmares that they have of the ticket machine printing and hearing that sound in their sleep. That's the guy's grocery games nightmare. It was my first TV experience, and I went out there, and I was scared to death about mean TV people and stuff like that, you know, because you see all the the horror stories on, like, you hear about it, you see it. I couldn't have had more opposite experience. They were all great. And then when I ended up going back out the second time, it was like the band got back together. Like, it was like, hey, how you doing? How the kids? How the fam? Like, let's have a great time. They were super supportive. Um, Just awesome. Guy is fantastic. And I don't think that guy, you know, guy gets a lot of uh, haterade from yeah. chefs, yeah. and uh, you know, because the frosted tips and the the shtick and everything like that. But let me tell you what, he is a fantastic human being. Everything about that show is organized on how it can give back to the community in the area. He all of that food before it spoils goes to local food charities, food banks, things like that. Um, and then he's a huge Make a Wish contributor. So he will often have people on set and stuff like that. They're a part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. They want to meet him or other celebrity chefs. Uh, He remembered every detail about me personally. And I only know that it was genuine because he, we were walking from the trailer into the store and he showed up uh, in his car. He gets out of the car, walks up, walks up to the group of us. And systematically, one by one, went, hey, so-and-so, you know, how are you doing? How's the restaurant? And when he got to me, he goes, hey, Robbie, how are your parents? How are Crystal and Bob? Wow. I was like, holy moly. Like, just that feeling of, like, 
him remembering that from one time to the other. And it wasn't a long time between my first episode and going back for redemption. But even so, like the thousands and thousands of people that he, you know, comes in contact with on a weekly basis to have that sort of recollection and not have an earpiece in that's coaching him through it. <laughs> it was awesome. Did, did you, uh, yeah. were you able to link up with him when he did his stint here in Delaware? No, reached out a couple times, uh, tried, but you know, he's very, you know, very insulated and very busy. Sure. I hope that he comes back around. I would love to see him, you know, come to uh, limestone barbecue and bourbon on, on a trip through Delaware again, or the stone balloon. I mean, they both have great stories that I think would be great for that show. Um, but did not. And, you know, we, everybody, it's funny. Cause everybody's like, Oh guys, guy came to town. Did he call you? I'm like, yeah, we're, we're BFFs. He just calls me on the regular, you know, uh, it's not how it works, but people ask you that all the time. Yeah. And then, uh, switch, switch gears over to, uh, Bobby Flay beating Bobby Flay. Uh, what was that experience like? And, and, and how did that even come about? What's the process of even getting on that? So for both of those, so, for guys grocery games, I actually you have to apply as a part of the process, but I had never applied ahead of time. I actually went to a couple of Top Chef casting calls, and the last one I went to was in Philadelphia, and I made it through a couple interviews and didn't get picked. Um, and I thought I was going to get picked because I made it so far through the interview process that I was like super excited. And when they called me and they were, you know, they basically told me that they were uh, they were full up for that season. And then they called me back a week later and said, hey, we had somebody drop out. Are you still interested? So I had like second life. Um, but then when they said, you know, hey, you know, we, we filled that last slot. Uh, I got a call from the people at Guys Grocery Games that day. And they were like, hey, man, we worked down the hall from the people that cast Top Chef. They loved you. Would you think about being on our show? Wow. So I said, yeah, absolutely. They're like, well, it's not a definite pick yet. You need to fill out the application. But I went through the process. Um it's the application, which is long as shit. And then, um, like people underestimate how much the application is for shows like that. Like top chef is like 39 pages. Whoa. Wow. And some is like, if you were to create a tasting menu based on the 12 days of Christmas, what would it be? If you, were, if you were to do a five course menu based on the texture velvet, what would you do? Like, they're not like, Hey, how old are you? What's your favorite color? Like, they're they're harder questions. So, uh, I filled out the application for Guys Grocery Games. Did a full like hour and a half, two hour long phone interview, and then did a Skype interview. And basically, the Skype interview is like the last step. And from there, you'll either get a call back or you won't. Um, so, luckily, I got a call back. I ended up out there, and I actually was at. So I had already filmed, went out there, and I was at Farmer and the Chef in Wilmington when they called me to come back for redemption. Hmm. It was super cool. And I said on my way out after the first episode, when you make it to the final round and you lose and you're walking through that grocery store and you're swallowing your pride and you're like, man, now I got like everybody at home is going to know I'm a loser. Like <laughs> you, all those emotions. Um, I was like, man, if they offer, if they offered me to come back for redemption, I would take it. And that thought went through my brain. And then when they called me, it was a pretty cool moment. So uh, with Beat Bobby Flay, I had filled out a casting form for the company that did that show and then a couple other shows, just like a general information form. 
Uh, they called me, said, how would you feel like being on Be Bobby Flay? I said, sounds great. They were like, we'll make the travel arrangements. And from the time I applied to the time I was on the show was probably about three weeks. Like it was super fast, that process. Um, it films in New York. So they, uh, they put me on the train to New York. I stayed in the, ho- I had to work that day. So I ended up staying in the hotel room for about four and a half hours. And then it was time to be back up, um, to go to the, the studio and film beat Bobby Flay. So, uh, great experience. Um, I think that, I think he is just quieter like off camera than guy is. So you have to kind of like talk to Bobby to get him to open up. Uh, my mom was in the audience. So that was a cool, cool thing. They, they invite, they give you three people to invite, to have them as a part of your, your audience. So my mom, one of her best friends and, uh, Steve, one of the owners of high five hospitality were in the audience and they were totally soccer dad and soccer mom and me the whole time. Like I, I'm cooking, I'm cooking scampi. And I've got toasted breadcrumbs in the oven. And my mom, I hear my mom like, don't burn the breadcrumbs. <laughs> I'm like, mom, shut up. <laughs> it's going to be okay. I'm not burning the breadcrumbs. Right, right. Uh, so it was a really neat experience. And it's been a blessing in uh, the neighborhood. I can tell you at Stone Balloon, we were not prepared for pre-Bobby Flay and post-Bobby Flay the first week. Really? Uh, couldn't right. believe, yeah, could not believe the amount of, uh, support and love from the community so much so that we like tripled our volume on a Tuesday night. And I ended up, it was like the first time I had slept in days and I was asleep. And I remember the restaurant calling me going, you got to come back. We need your help. So it's great. It's been allowed me to do a lot locally um, from a charity standpoint, uh, from a give back standpoint. And I couldn't have asked for a better experience. I have, you know, as a fan of a lot of those shows, I have two questions, how those shows work. One is, um, is all of that shot in the the amount of time that they actually say they're giving you? Or is that, is it broken up more than that? So it, the actual rounds themselves are shot in real time. Okay. So if they say it's 45 minutes, it's shot in 45 minutes. If they say it's 20 minutes, it's shot in 20 minutes. The time in between the rounds, though, is a lot because okay. they'll reset the stations, reset the cameras, clean up your mess, like all that stuff. Um, because especially on guys' grocery games, by the time you get back to your station and you're done prepping, like it looks like a bomb went off. <laughs> sure. So so they need some time to make that not look so bad <laughs> before you go back out there. And you honestly need a breather. Cause if you went through and did those three rounds in a row and then ran through the grocery store, you would have enough energy to pick up like two things and that would be it. I mean, it's, it, it's a lot. So there is space in between the rounds, but the rounds are, are filmed, you know, true to time. Um, you know, 45 minutes is 45 right. minutes. So, so that kind of, that kind of, uh, that, that kind of goes into my last question was I, you know, a lot of these shows, um, I always watch and it's not just cooking shows, but all of these, uh, you know, these, these types of shows where the, you know, the clock's counting down 10 seconds and you're watching everybody scramble, they're, they're sweating. And then you get to, you know, three, two, one, and everybody throws their hands up. I mean, are, are people really finishing at that very last second or is, is that a little bit of editing magic? I would say that they they add drama. Sure. There's some editing magic. Uh, it is like that, but I will say that there are definitely 
some people that are a little bit more composed at that time than others. So they, they do make it look super, super dramatic. Um, and most of the time it can be when I got kicked off of, uh, redemption, the final episode. I mean, I was, I was very much that guy that went, Oh shit. I didn't put the blue cheese on the plate and threw it from three feet away and hoped that a piece landed on each plate. (laughs) So (laughs) it's definitely, uh, they, they, they edit for, uh, for good TV, but it is close. It is close to that. There's always there's always somebody that's cool, calm, and collected. I was not the one on the last episode of Redemption, though. Robbie, just real real quick, um, I just wanted to point out to if if there are people that are listening that don't know um, that Shrimp Scampi from uh, Beat Bobby Flay that's that's available at Stone Balloon, right? Like as a meal. It certainly is. The Shrimp Scampi that Beat Bobby Flay is on the Stone Balloon menu uh, every day. It's on our takeout menu right now. Um, and it is the the most popular dish on the menu. Very cool, very cool. Well, uh, Robbie, listen, we really really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast, talking whiskey, talking uh, talking your restaurants and cooking in general. Um, this has been great and uh, one we've been looking forward to for a while. So we really appreciate you coming through. Hey guys, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. You know, keep keep spreading the good message about uh, bourbon and whiskey. Um, but it's been fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. One last thing. Uh, do you have any, uh, do you have, I know you're, 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 you're a lot of charities that you uh, work with. Is there anything you want to promote? I mean, right now I would just say, you know, go out and get takeout, get yeah. takeout responsibly, you know, support restaurants, support these people. Um, I think we do a lot for the community and right now the commu- we, we need the community at large to support us. Uh, so if you have a favorite place that you haven't been to in a while and they're open for takeout, you should absolutely go get takeout from them. And, and both of your restaurants are open for takeout? That is correct. So we are Stone Balloon is open Wednesday through Saturday. Limestone is open Wednesday through Sunday, except for we'll be closed on Easter there. Uh, available for takeout. Stone Balloon has a modified menu and some specials coming out this week. Uh, but Limestone has the full menu available. As well as I have my own personal business. It's called Full Circle Food. We do healthy home meal delivery. And we are we are delivering from uh, Philadelphia down to the Delaware beaches. All right, Robbie. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Cash Chasers podcast. We really appreciate having you on the show. Uh, to everybody out there, make sure um, even, even uh, during these times, we still have takeout available. Make sure you're checking out Stone Balloon in Newark and Limestone Barbecue out on, uh, on Limestone Road there. Thank you for joining the show. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to the Cash Chasers podcast. We will see you next week. Well, we are so grateful to have Chef Robbie Jester on the show. If you're a local to Delaware, be sure to check out both the Stone Balloon Ale House and Limestone Barbecue. They are both fantastic restaurants, and they are both still open during these tough times, offering takeout options. So be sure to go out there and support your local business. For more information, be sure to check out limestonebbqandbourbon.com or stoneballoon.com. As always, you can find us on all social media pages at Cash Chasers or email us at podcast at cashchasers.org. And as always, remember, Cash Chasers, it's not about finding the perfect dram. It's all in the chase.